Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I never wanted to be the type to think big thoughts about the nature of things. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. David, Michael Lepresto posted on our Facebook page, quote, it's taken me about 15 episodes to figure out who's the philosopher and who's the psychologist. Well, I'm glad Michael's figured it out, but but Dave, who do you think is the philosopher and who do you think is the psychologist? Uh, I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. Uh, <laughs> the minute I read that, I thought that's a pretty fucking good question. And uh, yeah. I, my fear is that uh, the real question is which one's the shittier psychologist. <laughs> I think we're both. No, pretty- I think it's which I, I totally disagree. Like, I think the one the one thing we know for sure is that you're a philosopher. <laughs> I know. This is what I, yeah. but I'm not a psychologist. I, I, I just don't. I wondered if it was driven by our equivalent lack of discussing too much psychology. We all we just. All all we discuss is psychology. I know that that's. What, I don't remember discussing any psychology. In fact, I was gonna. Re, I was gonna change our tagline. Name one. Uh, Strassen. P. F. Strassen. Freedom and resentment. The one. You, your relative justice. I mean, your your justice. Sorry, your uh, restorative justice stuff was philosophy article. None of the was by philosophers. Well, it wasn't well, psychology. Wait, well, what about fine, that? What about that? Property is property is uh, conflicts is property. Conflicts is a criminologist. Uh, yeah. Well. Yeah. God, they don't discuss data. Like I just say, like nobody, we never talk about data. We barely ever talk. We about all data. we do is talk about data. It's like all just like data from p hacking is pretty much like that. We should just rename the podcast "Data from P Hacking." You know, you, you pick and choose. Um, well, you know, if if I don't think that was a uh, even a criticism, I, I was kind of proud of that comment. But if if only all our feedback were that fun. Um. Yes, we have gotten some very good feedback, and then some maybe not so good feedback. I, yeah, I gotta say this: we we got it. So we got an email from uh, from Sam Harris, free, friend of the podcast, at least used to be a friend of the podcast. Um, <laughs> one's friend of the podcast. One's friend of the podcast. Although <laughs> although we really like Sam, and, uh, and he really took us to task. I mean, he I, I felt sore in all of the right places after I read uh, yeah. this email. So. So we thought it only fair to to actually uh, read Sam's comments uh, directed at us about our comments on the New Atheists. So uh, a couple episodes back, you you went on sort of a rant about how how you felt about a humorless rant, a humorless rant, <laughs> how you felt about the New Atheists. <laughs> um, I was a little, I, 
I wasn't as, I, at least I wasn't as emotional. I didn't care that much because I think I said that, no, you, that uh, I've been raised around religious people, so the new atheists are like not that annoying to me. You um, were sort of weaselly as usual. I was weaselly as usual, and I wrote Sam, and I told him, you know, Tamler's is just an asshole. So, um, <laughs> right, throwing me under the bus <laughs> as usual. <laughs> it's good. I love this, you know, good cop, bad cop. So, so we thought it fair to Sam, who we really do hope to get on soon. And who we ta- we've taken pot shots at, too, to we've be been, fair. Yeah, we've like, been we've taken we've been, some pot shots. We've been unfair, and I actually... I, well, I, think, I don't know about it. We've taken pot shots. Well, I, I think that pot shots entails unfairness, as a, doesn't it? Uh, it's um, a conceptual claim that I'm making. You should know. You're the philosopher. Yeah, we'll, you know what? We'll definitely run some X-Fi studies on <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, do an M- mechanical turkey with <laughs> <laughs> to figure out whether whether bachelors are actually single. <laughs> um, turns out, turns out, like a lot of them are married. <laughs> like Two thirds of our respondents, female married. Uh, so okay, let's let's actually read. Can we take a second though? Like I, you're you're you are an atheist, and so I take it that that at some level you have have some at least affinity for atheists. I mean, I don't. Is it? I, what right? do you mean by affinity? Like, I mean, you, am I attracted you, to that? It's not if you're as if your beef is about their beliefs. No, of course not. Right. So that's and, and the new atheist. Yeah, of course not. No, because I, I agree with their beliefs. It's new atheists, and you know, I think I, as much as Sam took offense to this, I think I was targeting Dawkins more. Mostly. But anyway, we, we, we keep okay. Let's read the email. email so just uh, read it, okay, because he now trashes us. Yeah, Tamler and David. If I'm going to recommend your podcast, you have a responsibility to, to-, to not totally lose your minds. Well, damn it. <laughs> um, it's if, great. We had that, if we took that responsibility seriously, there would be like four podcasts, maybe. The one yeah. with Fiery and then like maybe a couple more. Right, right. And, uh, okay. It's great that you guys aren't afraid to shoot from the hip, but in Tamler's short, humorless, and obviously heartfelt diatribe about the quote-unquote new atheists, you managed to endorse almost every silly canard I've ever heard. Tamler was not just expressing his opinion that we are, quote, fucking insufferable, insufferable, unquote, and engaged in, quote, one big circle jerk, unquote. You were both. Well, that was, I, I should need to give credit to Ami Palmer for that one. Oh, for the but, one yeah. big circle jerk. Yeah. You were both making absolutely false claims about our work. We don't convince anyone of anything. All right. That was our claim. Go back and listen to the level of certainty you both expressed on this point, and then take a moment to reflect on the fact that I've received tens of thousands of emails attesting to the effects of our criticism of religion, and Dawkins has received at least as many as I have. Daily, we hear from people at every point on the continuum of faith, and from points I never imagined existed. I've been contacted by children as young as 13 who have devoured our books, and YouTube videos are living in, are living in terror of their fanatical parents. All right, wait, wait. So, so, so let's to pause there. Uh, a couple things. Number one, there's one thing that he said that is totally misguided, and that's that part where he says, go back and listen to this part of, of the episode. And that implies that I, we would ever go back and listen to the <laughs> whole podcast. Well, there's no way we would ever do I that. I thought it was like, sweet that once he said Once I it, yeah. edit the thing, I never listen to it again. I know. Maybe, you don't even listen like, to my music interludes, the little clips like I put I, into the I game. do if you like tell me to. But there's no way like yeah. we're going to go back and listen to No, this. it's true. It's, so it's, I, I have to believe that we were as certain as we said we were. Second thing is I do think – I think a lot of what he says has – 
merit. I mean, you know, I, I, right. I don't know how much data there is, but I'm sure that he's convinced a lot of people, and especially, as my guess, people who are sort of on the fence about this right. have some sort of theoretical and intellectual ammunition now to use to convince themselves and to convince other, you know, and to sort of stand up to other people. I think that's fair. And I, in, I, in my response, I said, you know, what I think that public atheists like Sam and Dawkins do is they they give at least people a, um, a model of sort of that it's okay to be to to have those beliefs. There's just not a whole lot of people who are who publicly express their atheist views. Most people are just sort of atheist in private, and so it's sort of like free to be you and me did with boys playing with dolls. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Free to be you and me. Don't you remember that? Marlo Thomas. Uh, uh, no. And there's a song called William Has a Doll. When my friend William was five years old, he wanted a doll to hug and hold. Was this from the 60s? Because I wasn't born. Yeah, uh, it was early 70s. <laughs> It was a hippie kind of thing. It was like, guys, you would have loved it. Boys and girls are the same. Willie uh, should play with the doll. It's all right to cry. I mean, you you know, it's all right to cry, right? I don't think it's so. all right. Was it sampled cry. by any rappers? <laughs> no, but that's a good idea. <laughs> that's a really good idea. Don't don't give that up. I'll edit that out if you want. Um, so sorry, but yeah. my point was just like they were trying to make it okay for boys to cry and play with dolls. This is making it okay for atheists right. to believe right. what they believe in environments where people are hostile to that. All right. So that's fair enough. I've heard from fundamentalist pastors who have lost their faith, but who are still preaching to their flocks because they can't figure out what else they're qualified to do, which is fucking incredible. I, I believe it. I, I believe a bunch of pastors are, are closet atheists. In fact, there is now an entire website that serves as a support group for the for in-the-closet atheist members of the clergy. It's clergyproject.org. We'll put a link to it. And Dan Dennett has conducted extensive interviews with many of these people. You simply can't imagine the stories that we receive from readers, most of whom were not raised as atheists, which means that most of them came from their current, to their current position of rational secularism by critically reflecting on the brainwashing they received as children. Our books, lectures, and public debates have led many, many people to change their views. What I would be curious about is what percentage of these people that write him really were full-on believers, then read the book, and right. then uh, became convinced by atheism. It's um, hard to know, but that's that not... would be a pretty incredible feat. Yeah, it, no, that's true, but it's not the only good. That, I mean, so so you can imagine that right. somebody was a closeted atheist, and then they actually told one or two people in their life after reading the book. I think that's still doing doing some some good. Uh, when he says that he's been contacted by children as young as thirteen who've who've devoured books on YouTube videos and are living in terror of their fanatical parents. Um, there is, I don't know about the terror of their parents, but there is a, a certain amount of fear that, that uh, certain Christian religions like to instill in, in the flock of believers that does feel unethical to me. So I don't know, you weren't raised religious, but, but there is something about like, we used to just get these, these sermons about, um, as a Seventh-day Adventist, about, about the end of the world and how horrible it would be. And, I, you know, I'd have a knot in my stomach, man. I had anxiety about this shit. And if, if it turns out that there's no good evidence for, for the beliefs that 
that people were giving us that then it's kind of a fucked up thing to do, man. You you like, I, I would get ulcers thinking about the end of the uh, end of the world. I, I totally agree. I mean, I'm not like, I'm just defending those people. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. I know. I just, I'm just saying that, um, what the new atheists are doing and the general work of it that I've read, which doesn't include the end of faith, Sam Harris's book. Right. Um, which is why it would surprise me if I was, really targeting him. I mean, I was tar- targeting Dawkins, whose work on this I have read. So can we just take a little side note, then we'll yeah. get back to Sam Harris's email? Sure. So I sent you this article in The Telegraph that I'm honestly, like, I've got to think that the correspondent, Sarah Napton, we'll link this on the website, science correspondent, I've got to think that she misquoted him, because otherwise I feel like this is completely <laughs> insane. <laughs> So he thinks it's pernicious. He's talking about fairy tales now. He's, right. The headline is reading per- fairy stories to children is harmful, says Richard Dawkins. Right. Yeah. It, it was pernicious to teach children facts that were statistically improbable, such as the frog turning into a f- prince. Is it a good thing to go along with the fantasies of childhood, magical as they are, or should we be fostering a spirit of skepticism? Uh, even fairy tales, the, the ones we love with wizards or princesses, this is your direct quote, quotes, turning into frogs or whatever it was, there's a very interesting reason why a prince could not turn into a frog. It's statistically too improbable. <laughs> I, 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 I just think that, that, that if that's not either we, really out of context or, I don't know, like he was, <laughs> he was, he was really fucked up or something like that, 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 this, that, that this is a, a sign of a man decaying in some way. Like the, one of the most brilliant people and best writers that I ever knew is now just lost his mind a little bit. Because <laughs> the idea that when we tell these kids these fairy tales – that that's like oh oh and and this could definitely happen. This isn't that's not what we're doing. Like are you, like you all right? You yeah, see what I mean? No, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, two things. One, perhaps then that we should we should really. So I don't think that uh, Sam or or Dan Dennett get get anywhere close to this. So so that's right. that's a point where we'll grant some unfairness. Dawkins, I don't. You know, I know I know he's the sort of the more people resist, the more crazy he gets about these these kinds of claims he he goes on to talk about santa claus which is different from fairy tales i mean i don't remember anybody there's a reason they're called fairy tales and right. that is everybody knows i mean so that's yeah, presented for santa claus they believe something that's fake and bullshit for uh i mean that would make more sense i i, I would still think it misses the point but it makes more sense, yeah. it makes um, a little more sense but fairy tales stuff. and this is i think this is i, I bring this up because it's connected to i think the criticism that people have a legitimate criticism of the new atheists. They understand when religion is making false claims about the world and about the age of the earth and about the origins of human beings. And so, so, so religion does do that. And that is a role it plays, but then it plays this other role. Uh, and for some people, this is by far, this is 95% of why they align themselves with this religion of giving families and communities and, uh, and, and friends a kind of a, a structure and a function and a set of rituals to do that brings them all together. 
Yeah, and but, but, it, but, and there's a lot of people I know who are religious that are religious, and maybe this is more common for Jews. It is, but they're You're religious totally out of that. Talk, you can't. There are no Christians like that. This is this is a I, I real. Just, I, 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 no, there are no Christians who who say, "Well, I'm Christian, but I don't actually believe in God." There are plenty mm-hmm. of Jews who say that. It doesn't have to be that strong. It's just that that's I, I'm not that. It's like uh, I think Paul Bloom might have said this on the podcast, or if not. Someone quoted him. Maybe you quoted him. Belief shmelief. Yeah. It's like I, I don't necessarily not believe it. I don't believe. That's not the point. Like no, that you're was that was in point. response to Paul going to his rabbi and saying, "I don't believe." Right. Belief shmelief. Like, you don't yeah, have don't, to believe. No, don't believe. But Christians right. don't. Christians can't be Christian and not believe without being like super closeted about it. Right, and they're, and they're no longer Christians. It's defined by the belief. If you still, if you no longer believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for your sins, you're not a Christian, right? So maybe the problem is just Christians. Uh, no, no, it's Islam too. I think Judaism is the exception. I think that most most religions don't have the same sort of cultural component that can exist independent of belief that Judaism has. I don't, I don't know. Like, join a bowling league if you want. Yeah, join a, like, there's no reason if you, want, if you want that structure and rituals or whatever of uh, the camaraderie. You don't have to, you know, I got to agree here with, with the, the new atheists. Like, that's just the weak sauce reason to be, a, a, to be religious. No. You know, okay, first of all, what bowling league provides you? I don't with, know. Like, it's a, it's there's not no bowling leagues. <laughs> like, well, this isn't 1954. Uh, so now, so so now you're taking it seriously. <laughs> um, uh, you know, join a book club. Join. You know, there there are ways, and if there aren't ways, have to you get ever been to a book club meeting? Ritual, they no, suck. I don't. They're I, terrible. I have not. No, I mean, I'm a member of Oprah's book club, but um, <laughs> well, of course, there are good reasons and bad reasons to be religious. And the good reason is if you believe, and the bad reason is you don't believe, but you get some, you know. You get to see your. I don't know why that's a bad reason. That's a bad reason only if you're clo- what you you're a closeted something. It's not an atheist, and, and it's, it's probably not <laughs> a homosexual. It's like you're a closeted Kantian. <laughs> Listen, I I bad. I reason. don't believe in Kant anymore. I just go for the camaraderie. Uh, <laughs> the camaraderie, the famous Kant, <laughs> the Kantian camaraderie. camaraderie. We we all get together and <laughs> and don't masturbate with each other. Uh, <laughs> uh, Unlike the humans, we just all get together. It's a circle jerk. It's a circle jerk. Okay, let's keep reading. Let let me read number point number two. He's attacking our claim that we quote we attack straw men and fail to address the sophisticated views of our religious opponents. So this is that we said that atheists attack straw men and fail to address the sophisticated views. Sam says, this is total bullshit. First, 45% of Americans are straight-up fundamentalists, and most Muslims are fundamentalists by this standard. This is a much bigger problem than you seem to appreciate. Second, we have engaged all corners, comers. I've debated Bible thumpers like Rick Warren, but I've also debated scientists like Owen Gingrich, who champion more, quote-unquote, nuanced views. The other new atheists have done the same. He puts new atheists in quotes. I take it, is, or is that a label that they don't like? Is it, is, I don't know. Is that like the N-word for atheists? Um, <laughs> can they use it with each other? Um, they, you can say new atheists. That's our word. <laughs> you can say new atheists, uh, but not new atheists. Without the sir, you can't pronounce the T. Uh, new atheists. <laughs> so then he says, you are strawmanning us. 
Finally, on Tamler's assertion that it's really important for some people to believe. Well, let, let's, okay. can, can I? Yeah, yeah, these yeah. are two separate points. So let's let me just say, if 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 there was any chance that I would go back and listen to an old episode, I could tell you this for sure. <laughs> but if but if I know my view and if I know the kinds of things I would say, it's not that they haven't been willing to debate sophisticated it's not that they haven't taken on those comers honestly the 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 only thing of sam harris that i've ever read on religion at least at length is his debate with andrew sullivan Mm -hmm. on andrew sullivan's blog i thought sam harris just like embarrassed andrew sullivan during that exchange like he got the complete better of him and kind of exposed the tensions that you were talking about actually about how you're supposed to believe something and yet sort of know that there's no evidence for believing that at the same time and i thought sam so so i and and he's about as sophisticated as any religious christian anyway that i can imagine so i would never say that i don't think because i don't believe it i think what we said was that they caricature what most religious people are like that they imagine that and and you know he says this right now that almost everybody is fundamentalist and actually religion poisons their lives and the lives of others around them and that i don't believe and just simply because i know a lot of religious people and none of them are like that yeah, so he says 45% of Americans are straight, straight up fundamentalists. I don't know if this is— But I don't know how that, you define fundamentalists. Yeah, I'm not sure, and I don't know how many people who identify as— relig- what percentage of people who identify as believers qualify as fundamentalists. Maybe it's an interesting empirical question as to how, how many— a bit, But, you know, this is one of the things that I was saying in when we were discussing this in, originally, which is that, there, you know— there are a lot of those kinds of people when you're raised in a religion and they t- they are louder right they they are the ones who get up there and they're the ones who who talk more they're the ones so the reasonable in in my religion it would be unheard of for somebody who believes that evolution is true to actually speak about that in any public setting Right, so you're a Seventh Day Adventist. Well, yeah, so, that's like being a. I think that's cr- like that's crazy shit, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in in our defense, it's 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 no crazier than than any other religion. Um, in, it's no in, crazier than like Scientology, maybe. <laughs> yeah, we listen. We got we got the Bible right. Uh, we go to <laughs> nah, we go sure to church you. on Saturday. Oh, so, yeah, and we keep nice. the Sabbath, man. That's so, a real Sabbath. Yeah, but but so I think that it's just that you know even if they are, even if they're not the per, the the majority of all believers, they're definitely the ones who are writing the books and doing the videos and get, giving the sermons and all that stuff and. The existence of reasonable believers is very different from reasonable believers spreading reasonable views. I think that there's a lack of those. Yeah, I mean, and that's an empirical question. I don't know. All I know is that the people I know, but of course I would know, you know, yeah. it's unlikely that it, maybe I would know some fundamentalist. Um, and be, but, but the <laughs> but people Texas, I know, man, I know a lot of people who are religious. And, you know, here's the other thing. You don't have this because you're at Cornell in the northeast but most of my students are religious and i you know i talk about darwinism and darwinian approaches to ethics and arguments against the existence of god they're not uh well, what are they going to do man in any way fanatical they're, they're they 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 engage in the arguments uh, every once in a while someone will honestly say this is so weird like nobody's ever 
question these kinds of things before, and that's just hard for me to adjust to a little bit. You know, no, there's no fire and brimstone out of any of well, but what, zero. What are they going to say? <laughs> They're going to come to you and be like, no, God's going to send you to hell. Um, I, be- I bet you a lot of them, if they really are religious, like you say, just com- completely compartmentalize their, you know, their views on, on God's authority about ethical questions and and they just play along they're all pro-choice too pro same-sex marriage well then you have a fucking rare compartmentalize (laughs) but like the the, the compartments that it's not in include real social issues that are supposedly at the you know at the forefront of the culture this is not an argument i mean this is certainly it's not like sure there are a lot of christians that are pro-choice but like that but but that's I don't know. I mean, you're getting a you're getting a, a sample of kids who are right at the sort of cusp of deciding what they're going to be believe for the rest of their life. Um, I don't. So here's my I mean, challenge. Here, I have that. a challenge maybe, for you. Or maybe that's just like most religious. Okay, people. I have a challenge. It's not the you. ones you hear from. I have a ch- you know, put, put, not the- Let me let me let me give you this challenge to put your money where your mouth is, which is I challenge you to attend a Christian fundamental. It can't be hard to find there in Texas. Attend a Christian fundamentalist church for three months. Go to church every week. Yeah. And not, then after that, tell me how you feel. Like, I, I don't think you've been exposed to this stuff. Wait, so in what sense, like, what's... What, what, I want to I I know if that. you think that the camaraderie and the social and the ritual stuff is worth the, the, the trade-off from the the judgments and the beliefs that Look, they I, I I don't know if it's worth the trade off or not, but my point is it's not as pernicious as it is made out to be. I don't deny that there are people who are extremists, fundamentalists, and that that can lead to a lot of suffering. I don't deny that. I think they take it a little far, though, in not understanding that there is a big group of people. They, they believe crazy things. I mean, I may imagine this is probably a description of your parents, right? They believe crazy things, but it doesn't seem to... God damn it. But that doesn't stop... Charlie! No! They believe cra- But it doesn't stop them from being good people in any way. No, like, let me ask you that, no, since you have religious parents. No, Do you my, think religion has distracted from their lives? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. They're, Why? Because they they have a, probably avoided a number of experiences that they would have not avoided had they not have such experiences that I think are fun and good, like uh, um, having the occasional drink, masturbating without guilt. Uh, <laughs> um, no, but oh, no, nobody's arguing that there yeah. aren't good Christians. I mean, this, this is... No, but I mean, Christians who, like, their the Christianity has improved rather than detracted from their lives. Maybe, but... It's it's funny though. I mean, imagine that I gave you this proposition. If I said people who fail to vaccinate their kids uh, have happy lives and they're good people, now you would say, "Well, that's a so that's fucking vac- liberals tend to lead happy lives." Vaccinate so. your kids, like people. No, people who don't. I'm saying people who don't vaccinate their kids. You would liberals. say like that's liberals. Oh yeah, liberals. Whatever. Or climate change deniers. Whatever. You would say like it's not a good enough reason 
to like if I to like actually espouse that belief that is patently false in order to get sort of the benefits of that lifestyle. What you want to believe, I want people I to believe things that are true. I, I yeah, but not at all costs, right? I mean, there are certain times where I'm happy costs. if they believe something is false. I mean, again, I have these, I have these relatives, these Orthodox Jewish relatives. And it's not like I don't have any beef with them, given that a lot of them have cut me off since I married a non-Jew. And yet, I, 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 there's no – if you asked me, has religion, their, their Orthodox Jewishness improved their lives or detracted to it from it, I would, I would say with full confidence that it has improved their lives. And, and I know them really, really, really well. How do you know, how do you know if it improved? I've gone to see – I've gone to their, all their synagogues and sat through all their holidays and been made fun of for believing in, you know, in Darwinism by their kids. And I still say – that yeah i mean i don't know how you would know that it's made their lives better you you would you how would you was there a time when they weren't orthodox jews like i just they are they are much happier as a community than any people of roughly that you know those looks and that intelligence are Sometimes totally you have to compare one sample to a representative sample yeah. in another population. <laughs> okay, I just I just think that that if you're going to talk about that much about fundamentalists and Christian beliefs and and whatever whatever, you should just go. Maybe not three months, but just go. Well, I go don't for think I've a... talked about fundamentalists. Well, that, this is like, usually... I agree that that's bad. Like I haven't well, said mo- most Christ... shit defending fundamentalist Christianity. You're talking about religion and the benefits of religion, I, and most re- but it's most not Christians all fundamentalism. Amer- right? No, they're not. But but probably most American Christians. People who actually say that they believe are are qualify as someone else, but even if only fifty percent do exactly what I was saying, how th- it is the no, case. No, but I think it's way less than fifty percent. Well, they're the vocal ones, so they're the leaders of the religion. They're the ones that drive it. Fine, right. they're the ones that. There's always crazy freaking leaders. No, they have mean the you have influence. To, they like, have the... be, you have to not be moderate. Like, can we not be a moderate liberals? Because like there are a lot of crazy liberals out but, there. But let me ask you this: you 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 don't believe that God exists, but you're perfectly okay with people believing that god does exist and that he did that he created the world and that it it doesn't even bother you sometimes that this is maybe fairy tales don't lead to unscientific beliefs but like patently unscientific beliefs that angels pr- prevent people from getting in car accidents doesn't doesn't that bother you at all don't you want to believe what bothers you a little but it doesn't bother me maybe as much as it bothers you and definitely not as much as it bothers sam harris and richard dawkins because you know, like I think there are trade-offs, and sometimes. All right, well, actually, re- this is relevant to the next okay. last part of the email. Now we got to stop. This. All right, finally, on Tamler's assertion that it quote it's really important for some people to believe unquote. Take a moment to reflect on how condescending this attitude is. The new atheists are treating people like adults who can handle the truth. You are treating them like children who can't. Which approach is actually disrespectful? My new book is entirely on the topic of spiritual experience. A person doesn't have to be duped about cosmology or evolution or believe any sectarian nonsense to be quote like Jesus. And it is just intellectually and ethically lazy to suggest otherwise. I haven't seen The Unbelievers, but it doesn't sound like you've seen it either. I'm told it contains a snippet that's of the true. talk I gave. <laughs> yeah. I'm told it contains a snippet of the talk I gave at the Global Atheist Convention to 4,500 assembled atheists. Watch this lecture and tell me that I'm engaged in merely mocking religious people and pandering to my fellow atheist bullies. This is the largest atheist convention ever, and this is as insular and smug as I ever get. And so he put a link to YouTube. Yeah, and which All right, well, so one thing we should clarify is that we've reviewed whole books without reading those books. <laughs> like, this is nothing. 
<laughs> like making a comment about the unbelievers, that's not intellectually dishonest by our standards. This is, this is why he's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but secondly, I guess there's a substantive disagreement. I don't think that we're condescending to – when I say that it's actually improved some people's lives, I don't think I'm being condescending to them. In any way, I am recognizing that religion, this is the thing that I think the athe- new atheists have a hard time just understanding. I am recognizing that it offers some people a kind of community and a kind of sense of purpose and meaning and belonging that that they need and that maybe I would like at just as much as they do because I you do feel somewhat isolated sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and well, maybe that's what they're know, trying like, to do, form a community of atheists, right? And well, that's you, fine. That's you totally to, fine. I think that's great. But like, you don't have do to drag that. along weird beliefs about like – You don't have – right. But, but, but it's also not the worst thing if you do. But I don't think no, anybody's con- being condescending to anybody. Yeah. Um, by I, I, saying so, that, maybe the disagreement then with, between you and I is substantive because I want people to believe what is true, and I view all all of these things as barriers to getting people to actually believe true things, whether it's about science, about the nature of the universe, all of this stuff. Like, I'm not okay with 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 condoning an entire institution. That I mean, this is why we hate Scientology because it seems like such bullshit, right? It's just like oh, you can't just make up shit about aliens. But like I'm surprised – like even if Scientologists are happier, like, I, I just wouldn't endorse them, right? Like I wouldn't – they they probably – they make more money. <laughs> but that's a separate issue, right? From us being – from me, I guess this one was directed solely at me. From me being condescending towards people, I think I'm just recognizing that some people – and there's no reason to like to like force them out of it, ridiculing them for some false beliefs. Well – like Dawkins again, and and most of my stuff is directed at Dawkins. Yeah, who, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I don't know Sam Harris's work on this, but um, to the extent that I included him in this, you know, I I shouldn't have done that because I don't know his work. Right. So I think uh, that I think that that it's good to be to to be open about your views, to be and to be scientific and promote the truth. And yeah, ridicule. I I don't think there's any room for ridicule in any of this, but then this is why I concluded that just don't be a dick is what I want everybody, religious and non-religious, to be. But I do want people to get – just to just fucking open their eyes, and I feel like a lot of religious people just don't open their eyes to what is probably the truth. Don't you want people to believe the right things? I'm not saying I know all. Yeah, the right I do. Things. Like you know, and, and we didn't have Santa Claus as an issue because because he's a boy. Not, I'm not Christian. <laughs> um, did I, I? I decided screw it out of laziness. It wasn't like uh, she's not. I, I also just didn't believe that kids believe in Santa Claus, and I and I guess I'm yeah, wrong about some that. Some really do, but I, I think I, I I think that they. I like Dave, like, she said to me, "I kind of wish Daddy hadn't told me." Uh, <laughs> uh, so right, so like I did what you know Dawkins would have loved, uh, what he might have like jerked off to, is I told my kid that there wasn't Santa Claus. Well, I I never. I mean. No, you did. You messed it up because you let her believe first. I never let my. No, I didn't let her believe first. And the tooth, but the tooth fairy is another good example. It's like, (laughs) did she ever really believe in the tooth fairy? Eh, Kind of. (laughs) I did not ruin it. You. That's not true. You ruined it. You. What? See, I'm getting I'm getting shit from both sides. <laughs> yeah. Good. Really. Getting shit from Sam Harris and you that I like <laughs> indulge these beliefs too much. And now from my family that uh, that I don't uh, indulge them enough. We've just determined that you're just a horrible, horrible human being. <laughs> <laughs> Who wishes they were an Orthodox Jew. <laughs> 
All right. Well, speaking of human beings that aren't horrible, uh, we'll be right back with Walter Sinnott Armstrong. to Very Bad Wizards. Today we uh, have the pleasure of having a guest. Now, we've been trying to get uh, Walter Sinnott Armstrong to be on our podcast for yeah, six months since, since I arrived. Uh, Walter is, is my mentor. He is at least half of the reason that I am here at Duke and at least half of the reason that I know anything about anything in philosophy. Um, he is the Chauncey Stillman, Chauncey professor Stillman, of professor ethics. of practical ethics here at Duke University and at the Keenan Institute for Ethics. That is in and in, an appointment in the Department of Philosophy and an appointment at the Duke Institute for Brain Science. Science. Uh, now, what you know about brains, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I know three things about what? brains. Uh, you can't live without them. They're fun to study and they taste good. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it tastes good. Well, do, do smart people taste better or worse? Smart people definitely taste better. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to eating your brain someday. <laughs> oh, God, I hope I outlive you. Uh, you guys um, are drinking. Yeah. We're drinking just wine because, uh, you know, the nectar of the gods. Not the not like ever clear like you drink on every episode. I, Walter, you should know. So we're going to talk a little bit about Walter's defensive contrastivism but you should know that we ended last episode with me pulling for contrastivism saying you were going to be on it and dave kind of saying i no, no no i don't i don't want to do it i'm going soft oh oh is that how it was is that well first you know i want to say a few words about walter um let me tell this story once once i was at a conference with walter and i was bitching and moaning about the way in which we use the term moral dilemmas and uh, Walter says, you know, I wrote a book about that. <laughs> and I felt so stupid because I, had, I didn't realize it. he wrote the book on moral dilemmas. He wrote a book called Moral Dilemmas. And, uh, and that's just a little, uh, a little taste of the kinds of things that he studies. He studies anything that's interesting. So when I was thinking about what to talk to Walter about, uh, sorry, Tamler was, kiss- Tamler was kissing my ass. <laughs> yeah, um, right. That, that that was the point. Uh, ta- uh, why we should give performance enhancing drugs to jury members? Well, sure, because you know they. I can't follow lawyers, and I read a lot of their writings. I know you and know these what? guys, I- and they like work in a gas station. They got to go sit in the jury box, listen to these guys argue for eight hours a day, and half of them go to sleep or don't pay attention. Give, give Madderall for justice. Yeah, I bet you that yeah. would that would be way more important than your restorative justice. The title of the paper was. Juicing the jury for justice. Juicing the jury nice. for justice. <laughs> you can retire and go on your gravestone on your and be happy. That's a life well lived. Yes. 
Um, so, you know, I was just saying there's tons of interesting stuff. Contrastivism, I don't even know what it is. So why don't we ask Walter to tell us? It uh, has a, a bad name. So first thing you want to do is change the name. Well, I'll tell you what. At the end of the episode, you tell me what it ought to be called instead. Okay. But, right. and, you know, it, and, philosophers in the old days, the goal was to come up with an overall worldview that was coherent and justified and covered everything to show how everything fit together. And I always thought that's what's distinctive of philosophy, that you want to study bodies, you go to the physics department, you want to study minds, you go to psychology, but you want to study how mind and body are related. That's, well, that's a philosophical issue. So you want an overall worldview. And my worldview, I decided, was contrastivism. Uh, the basic idea is that all the classical philosophical issues, or at least the ones that interest me most, all have to do with reasons. You know, there are reasons for belief, and epistemology or theory of knowledge concerns that. There are reasons why things happen. And theories of causation and explanation in the philosophy of science concern that. Uh, and there are reasons to do things or not to do things. And that's what ethics studies. So a lot of philosophy ends up being about reasons. And most people think, well, you have a reason to do this or you have a reason not to do that and so on. But actually, if you think about it, it's got to be a reason to do one thing as opposed to another. And something that's a reason to do something as opposed to one contrast is not a reason to do that same thing as opposed to another contrast. So, so I'll can just, you, let me just give you, you a give simple example yeah. of just, just even at that most basic general level sure. what that means. Somebody says, why is it raining? If you ask, well, why is it raining as opposed to snowing? The answer is temperature. Why is it raining as opposed to staying dry, not precipitating at all? The answer is humidity. But you get a different answer depending on what the contrast is. And so the reason why it's raining, you can't give. Is it temperature or is it humidity? You can't answer that question. you got to say, well, the reason why it's raining as opposed to snowing is temperature, and the reason why it's raining as opposed to staying dry is humidity. Yeah, so, okay, all that's true. Why is this something that can constitute an entire worldview in philosophy? Well, let me draw an analogy to show how such a simple point can have big implications. I mean, people used to ask, how fast is the object going? And now they ask, how fast is it going relative to the ground, not relative to the moon or relative to the clouds or something like that? And you think, well, yeah, that's kind of obvious. That's simple. What's the big deal? And yet that leads to a, a complete theory of physical reality in the form of theory of relativity with a lot of additions, obviously. And that's the kind of model here, that once you realize that reasons are uh, relative to contrast classes in this way, then it's going to affect your theories about reasons for belief in the theory of knowledge. It's going to affect your theories about reasons why things happen in the theory of causation. It's going to affect your theories about uh, reasons for action in ethics. And so all of those different areas get uh, affected in different ways. So it's really um, about clarifying. But take a case of ethics because that's what I'm most familiar with being not the philosopher that I am. When you take these sacrificial moral dilemmas that people have pit against each other, you know, with Jarvis Thompson and Philippe Foote, right? It, isn't it inherent in those questions that there's a contrast? So you say, ought I 
pull the lever as opposed to not pulling the lever? Is is contrastivism something that some people have been doing well before, and you're just sort of highlighting that that is the kind of question that needs to be asked? Sure. In a way, that's right. But what happens is people in everyday situations say, well, you know, should I turn right here? Uh, and everybody thinks, well, instead of going straight or turning left, and the contrast is understood in everyday context because you're answering it while you're in the car trying to get to the restaurant. Right. But then philosophers there are Gricean norms that are communicated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just want to say Gricean. Yeah, yeah. Nice. And, uh, <laughs> it's a nice Good job. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and then philosophers come along and they say, well, I want to ask it in the abstract independent of any context. And that's when you lose the contrast. Now you don't know which contrast is being asked about because it's asked in this abstract fashion outside of any uh, practical uh, arena. Uh, So common sense people, I think, deal with this very well all the time. And philosophers get get themselves all tangled up into paradoxes when they forget about the contrast. So what's a paradox that a philosopher gets tangled up in because they don't view things in this contrastivist way. Free will. Well, free will certainly would be, uh, would be one of them. Take, for example, a, uh, an addict, someone who is addicted to alcohol or to drugs or uh, something of that sort. Then you go, do they have control over what they're doing? Are they really free not to have the drink that they're having right now? Well... Let's suppose this addict could go for an hour without having a drink, but after an hour would start to feel really strange and eventually would have a drink within two hours. Well, are they free or are they not to have that drink? Well, they're free to have it now as opposed to next hour, but they're not free to have it now as opposed to five hours from now because they can't wait that long. And yet people will argue, are they really free or not? And That's just taking it out of context and forgetting the contrast. And then you can argue to you're blue in the face and you'll never get anywhere. What if I want to ask, though, is Tamler annoying? Oh, well, some things are clear. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the question I ask is, as it seems as if some work needs to be done to determine what the proper, the appropriate contrasting class is, right? Why? To me, that's like asking, is the car going 50 miles an hour? Is the appropriate contrast the road or the moon? And the answer is they're both true. It's yeah. true that the car is going 50 miles an right. hour relative. Given the goals of my question. But what I'm asking is really, does it do any work? Like, should I think of the most, the most annoying person I know and, be like, and then think, well, Tamler is not annoying? Uh, or should I think about the least annoying person I know and then think Tamler is annoying? It seems as if. Merely asking the question of what to contrast it with is already betraying the answer that I want to find. Merely asking the yeah, merely asking the question is Tamler annoying, you know, suggests that you want the answer to be yes. <laughs> no, I really don't want him to be annoying. It's a, it's a constant, <laughs> constant struggle. You want me to answer yes. You want him to change. Okay, fine. Uh, and so sometimes in the particular context, it's going to be clear. But that's notice that's not – I'm not saying anything contrary to that. Yeah, I don't know how this got into a conversation about how annoying I am. But uh, <laughs> I, I It's do. David's fault, not mine. Yeah. 
we talked about free will. And yes, of course, it's going to make sense when you're asking whether someone has control over their actions or whether they're free to compare it to a relevant contrast class. But sometimes what you want to know is sort of all or nothing. So, for example, there are skeptics about moral responsibility. There are people who think we can never be morally responsible. We, we can never deserve praise or blame because ultimately everything that we do is beyond our control. According to your view, it seems like it just automatically rules out, just by ver- definition almost, the possibility that that could be true, that some, it, someone could only be more morally responsible or less more morally responsible but they can't not it can't be true that we're all not morally responsible because of certain conditions are met you know like the truth of determinism or the truth of physicalism or whatever you see what i'm saying i see what you're saying but let me correct one thing and then i'll come back to the main point but yeah there always is the extreme case right if you ask is uh alan iverson tall Turns out he's the tallest member of his family and the shortest person ever to win the MVP in the NBA. And so is he tall? It's a stupid question. But if you take the tallest person in the world and you go, are they tall? Well, they're tall relative to every contrast class. And so, of course, they are tall. So what happens is there's still going to be clear cases, and I don't want to deny that. But the skeptics about moral responsibility, as you know, think that it's not just that there is a person who's the least morally responsible, who's just not at all. It's that they it's that none of us are morally responsible. Right. They think nobody is morally responsible to any degree. So I just wanted to clear that up first, though. Yeah. I would say some people are not at all morally responsible relative to any contrast class, like somebody having an epileptic seizure has no control whatsoever over how their body moves. Uh, they might not even be conscious of how their body is moving. And so, but that's not really the point that Tamler's asking. No. So I think if you ask, is this person free? I want to distinguish two notions of freedom. One notion of freedom is free as opposed to caused, right? Right. As opposed to something causing me to do it, I'm free. Well, in that sense, if determinism is true, nobody's free in that sense relative to that contrast class. But you can also ask something like free as opposed to coerced. And some people do things when they're not coerced. There's no threat on them. Nobody's got a gun to their head. They know exactly what they're doing. Then somebody comes along, but I want to know, are they free? Are they free? Are they free? And I just go, look, what a stupid question. But see, I agree with you about that. That is a stupid question. But if you, but what I don't think is necessarily a stupid question is, do they deserve blame? Do they deserve punishment? People are free to varying degrees. You can legitimately argue uh, about whether people can deserve blame and punishment. Uh, so set aside the free issue. I want to focus on the like the deserve blame and punishment issue. How does contrastivism handle that? Well, I want to find out punishment as opposed to what and deserve as opposed to what. So uh, punishment, uh, I think, you know, for example, some people who are going to be dangerous if they're allowed out on the streets, they deserve to be punished as opposed to be kept out on the streets. But they might not deserve to be punished as opposed to found not guilty by reason of insanity and kept in a mental institution instead of a prison. So uh, when you ask, do they deserve punishment, I still need to know what the contrast is. And, and then I'm going to say, well, what do you mean by deserve it? 
deserve it as opposed to it's a good thing to happen? Well, I might say it's a good thing that they get punished, but do they really deserve it uh, might be a very sep- a very different question. But can it always can the answer always be no to that question? People would give the answer no to that question in all cases, but I think they would be wrong to say so. I think there are some levels of desert and some levels of punishment that people do deserve. Yeah. But is that my guess the worry is is that contrastivism forces that to happen. Contrastivism might be inherently conservative in the sense that it rules out skeptical alternatives by definition. So it doesn't rule them out by definition. You could still hold that view. What contrastivism does is it makes it clear why that view is obviously wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, how's that not ruling it out? You can't, no, but you can't blame (laughs) a view for making it clear why why the alternatives are wrong. That's what you're supposed to do in an argument. That's not a Feature. That's so not a how bug, it, that's a feature. So how does it make dessert skepticism? How does it make it clear that that's misguided or wrong? Well, you got to tell me exactly what you mean by dessert skepticism. Some so people skepticism have- that anybody can deserve blame and punishment. Take your favorite case, the person you think is most free and who's done the worst thing. You know, they burn up their wife and kids so that, you know, burn them alive in their house so they can run off with their secretary. Now, yeah, I'm going to say that person deserves punishment. And the skeptics are going to come along and say, no, they don't. And I'm going to say, why not? And they're going to say, well, because ultimately their character was not self-created. And the factors that led them to be who they are all trace back causally beyond their control. And I'm going to say, yeah, yeah, so what? Why does that show they don't deserve it? I mean, notice the contrastivist is going to say there's an ambiguity there, right? Uh, They didn't freely make themselves the way they are. But all that means is they had a cause. There was a cause. And of course there was a cause. They're not free from causation. But they're free from coercion. Nobody coerced them to burn up their wife and kids. Now the question is, which one really matters? Do we say that people deserve things only when they're free from causation or only when they're free from coercion? And I want to say, well, they deserve things even when they're not free from causation. You know, and the skeptic's going to say, well, why? And I say, why not? I mean, that's the common sense (laughs) view. People think that it's deserved. You've got a burden of proof here because you're going contrary to what everybody else in the world believes. And now, where's your argument? Your argument depends on but an ambiguity that I contrastivism mean, brings out. So we got to say we were distracted by the cuteness of Tamler's daughter making devil ear, <laughs> devil horns behind her. <laughs> I, I, it's a burden-shifting argument. It's not a therefore-it's-wrong argument. And then, But then the burden-shifting argument based on, well— Nobody really believes that uh, now turns into, okay, have you met the burden? Is there really an argument for dessert skepticism? And now let's look at those arguments. And the contrastivist is going to say those arguments are always equivocations because they depend on using different contrast classes in different premises. Okay, that's fair. So you have this quote in the paper that I like. Uh, yeah. The benefits of contrastivism come not from picking sides in ancient, in ancient disputes. The benefits come instead from clarifying issues and showing how to make progress and avoid useless squabbles. Right. 
Contrastive is dissolve rather than solve traditional philosophical issues. Now, I love avoiding useless squabbles. So let's. But then what would I you do hear on your ones. show if there were no squabbles? I mean, come on. <laughs> well, useless Those squabbles is the meat. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. Okay, you're Wait, right. Yeah, okay, useless fair squab- useless yeah, okay. squabbles are the meat of our show. Whereas <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> usually it's Tamler accusing me of, of making useless claims, I think. Kantian, more Kantian. Kantian. <laughs> but that's a synonym for useless, I guess. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go through like like some of the useless squabbles that you think contrastivism dissolves rather than resolves. So let's turn to epistemology first, theory of knowledge. One of the big issues is what counts as evidence. And Goodman has this old classic paradox of Gru and Bleen. And the question is, do we have any evidence that emeralds are green? And, and you know, of course we do. We've looked at hundreds of them. And so let's just clarify for the listeners who might not know, GRU is green up until a certain date? Right. Let's say 3,000. Okay. And so to say that emeralds are green is to say that they're constantly green. Uh, to say that they're GRU is to say that they're green before the year 3000 and blue after the right. year 3000. I'm not sure that Tamler's ever heard this because he's not no, quite the philosopher. I actually, this is one that I know. <laughs> okay, one. good. And so the I took Alex Rosenberg's philosophy of science class. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So the contrastivist comes and says, what a stupid argument. You know, clearly the evidence that we have seen emeralds as green shows that there is evidence that they're green as opposed to blue. Because if they were blue, they would not have looked the way they did when we observed them. But it is not evidence that they're green as opposed to grew, because even if they were grew, they would have looked just the way they were when we saw them. And so once you get straight that it's not evidence that they're green, but instead evidence that they're green as opposed to blue, yes, green as opposed to grew, no. Then you've resolved the conflict. Wait, have uh, you really I mean, resolved the conflict? I mean, isn't the claim that we don't know whether or not they're grew or green? Aren't you just saying, yeah, I agree. You don't know whether they're green or grew. Yeah, I'm saying we don't know whether they're green or grew. Yeah, but not I'm assigning I'm with the skeptic on that contrast. Yeah. But, I mean, the, but, but the, whoever the, the hell issue thought is they we were think grew we, to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> we do believe that they're green rather than grew. Right. You do? But we don't have any evidence that they you are. You ask me that I'm – you ask me to bet my – let's say I have – I'm going to have ancestors uh, – not ancestors, progeny. And you know they're going to get a shitload of money or lose a shitload of money based on what I bet. Then I'm going to say they're, they're green. Yeah, but that's neither here nor there. Right? Yeah, I mean that shows that you believe it. That doesn't show that you have any evidence for that belief. Right. But I mean the question I, I think is that's a evidence. common intuition, right? That yeah, we, yeah, yeah, but that's why. The question is whether that intuition is justified. And right. you're saying it's not. But then yeah. you're not. It doesn't seem like you're resolving the problem. You're just taking sides on that issue. I'm taking sides on that issue uh, because I want to say that our experiences of emeralds, the way they look to us today – is not evidence that those emeralds are green as opposed to grew. And I think when you think through what's happening, you'll see, yeah, that's right. But they are evidence that they're green as opposed to blue. And notice that the skeptics, the people who follow, you know, the, who think Goodman's puzzle shows that there's no evidence for anything, well, I'm giving them part of what they want. It's not evidence for green as opposed to grew. But I'm also denying part of they want because they also want to say we don't have evidence that they're green as opposed to blue. And you go, once you get it straight, you realize, well, the evidence has some force, but it doesn't rule out everything. 
Okay. And this is an everyday feature, you know. It makes it sound like it's a big, hairy, philosophical puzzle, but it applies in everyday life, too. I remember I was uh, playing the... What was it? Okay, see, it was the 15th hole at Gullen Number 1, a golf course right outside of Edinburgh. And I'm playing with Kate Eveling. And Kate was, was with me, and I said, she said, is that bird over there a crow? And I said, yeah, it's a, I think it's a crow uh, because ravens glide in. They don't flap their wings the way crows do. And she goes, well, maybe it's a rook. And I said... Well, I don't know about rooks. Uh, which do rooks do? I don't know. And it turns out my evidence was evidence that it's a crow as opposed to a raven, but it's not evidence that it's a crow as opposed to a rook. I mean, this is just something that happened on a golf course. It's not. You don't need Goodman to realize that the evidence you have rules out some possibilities but doesn't rule out all possibilities. And if you think that you have to require your evidence to rule out all possibilities before you have have any right to believe anything, then you're in deep trouble because you'll never think you're justified in believing anything. So, so if I understand it right, what your what contrastivism does is it clarifies questions and can narrow down the scope of those questions. Right. And so in this That's claim one, and then claim two is it resolves paradoxes. Uh, so what paradox is it? I want to know what what action, what, what do we know now because of contrastivism that we didn't know before? I mean, we know that the alcoholic is neither, it's not that the alcoholic is free or not free. It's that the al- alcoholic is free to drink now as opposed to an hour from now, but not to drink now as opposed to wait a week before he has his next drink. But contrastivism didn't tell us that. Just empirical observation told us that. So I'm happy to be on the side of empirical observation of the alcoholic's habits, right? If contrastivism clarifies what conclusion you want to draw from that observation. Because most people say, well, is the, does the alcoholic control or not? You know? And people argue about that stuff, and they yell and scream at each other and make public (laughs) policy on that basis. And you go, it's a stupid question. The question is whether the alcoholic has control relative to this contrast class, not relative to another. Quit arguing about whether the the alcoholic has control or not. So what's another philosophical paradox or problem that contrastivism can get rid of? Tambler wants to know if he can get rid of Gettier cases. Gettier yeah, cases but that's from- a but uh, but uh, you know I only my dreams only. Uh, <laughs> when Tambler so is no longer has erotic dreams. He just has dreams in which Gettier cases are never mentioned again. And, <laughs> and Frankfurt cases. Also. And Frankfurt cases. So let's go to moral dilemmas, which were mentioned before. Okay. You know, Sophie shows up at the Nazi concentration camp with her two children. And right. the guard says, you know, you got to pick your daughter or your son. Which one is going to get killed right now and which one's going to go to the kids' barracks? And if you don't pick, I'm going to kill all three of you right now. Uh, and so she's got to pick. And she picks... We resolved this one already on a previous episode. Really? Yeah. Wait, what is it? Daughter or son? It's coin flip. Coin flip. There you go. Okay. This was Tamler's biggest contribution to the philosophical literature. So, in fact, she picks one of them. Uh, I forget which one it was. Daughter? She picks the son. She picks the son, and the son goes off to die. And now you ask, did she have a reason? No, no, no. Sorry. She picks the daughter to die. Well, which is it? She picks the son to live. live. That's what I meant. Okay. Uh, She picks the daughter to die. And so... uh, 
Did she have a reason to pick uh, the son to live? Well, she had a reason to pick the son to live as opposed to not picking either of them because then they all would have died. Did she have a reason to pick the son as opposed to the daughter? No, because either one would have (laughs) served that purpose. And so we now get a better sense of why uh, she had such a problem because she had a reason, but it didn't narrow it down to one option. I've I've been around a lot of parents where (laughs) it's pretty clear there's one of their kids that should live and one of their kids that shouldn't relative (laughs) to each other. Which one of yours is... You only yeah, well, one. I only have one, so I never. Oh, have to that face solves it. the problem. You're yeah, good at this. Yeah, Avoiding see? moral dilemmas is half the trick. Okay, good. Yeah, no. But I have two dogs, and uh, it's clear goes. who should die between my two <laughs> dogs. I love both of them, but I love one of them's clearly better than the other. And uh, <laughs> the Nazi wants to take out my Omar, my my pit bull. Yeah. So, what about your department colleagues? Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, I, I love them all equally. Yeah, right. Them all the same. <laughs> well, how about the, the issue between consequentialism and deontology? So what light does con- contrastivism shed? Uh, so uh, one issue between consequentialism and deontology is that deontologists often say that consequentialists are too demanding. Because they say that you ought to just like give everything to charity and help everybody. That's in right. There. That's a nice uh, shirt. How much did that cost? Yeah. <laughs> How many people did you kill? <laughs> About that fifteenth hole. With that fifteenth hole, just like, just playing that fifteenth hole. How, yeah. many, how many Africans yeah. did you kill? Exactly. <laughs> And so, and so one of the big debates is about the demandingness of morality. And so what does a contrastivist consequentialist like myself say about that? I say, well, you know, it probably would have been better to, uh, you know, stay at home instead of going to the movie, you know, right? Better to go to the cheap restaurant instead of the expensive restaurant, even though it's not better to go to the cheap restaurant as opposed to staying home. And what happens then is you get... The different alternatives lining up on a scale. This is what uh, people, Alistair Norcross and others have called uh, scalar consequentialism, right? You have to judge the act. Is it the best thing you could have done? Almost nothing that any of us ever do is the best thing we could have done. But it can be a lot better than most alternatives and a lot better than what most people would have done. And once you see consequentialism in that light, it becomes less demanding because you say, sure, I wasn't ideal, but I was a lot better than I could have done but, and a lot better than most people. But here's where, you, here's where I get a little concerned that the, the comparison uh, does become self-serving because I can imagine um, the worst consequentialist in the world and constantly feel better that my decisions are compared to him or her. So notice yeah. that there are two kind of tasks in philosophy. You know, one is this kind of... One, is, one apparently is to harass women. <laughs> let's, just, let's just admit that. No. That but there are two. That's not the only task. No, I was, that was not one of my two. No, that, was, um, that would never be one of yours. So one task in philosophy is to tell people what they ought to do, tell people what they ought to think. Yeah. Right? And they have this prescriptive view. The other is to describe where we stand. What is our status morally? I want to say, look, the contrastivist view is doing the second task, not the first. So I can say, you know, if I go to the cheap restaurant instead of the expensive restaurant, you know, I had a reason to go to the cheap restaurant instead of the expensive one. And that was a good thing to go to the cheap restaurant as opposed to the expensive one. But it wasn't maybe as good as staying home and giving the money to charity. 
but it was better than many other alternatives. Now, that describes where I'm standing on the moral scale. But if somebody comes along and but says, the moral scale but is that is, good enough? But you does just that satisfy you? But you just that's constructed a moral scale that's fairly restricted in its range. So you could construct it all the way to cheap restaurant versus buying buying rice and beans, cheap restaurant versus going to, yeah. you know. Um, so that's the, what I eat at home is rice and beans. <laughs> yeah, that's what I eat actually. But <laughs> but your but your choice of the scale puts you in a better or worse light. And so I'm worried that the self-serving nature of this stuff, you can say, well, you know what? I'm a pretty good guy compared to that Bernie Madoff. See, you keep, but my, one of the comparisons is self-serving. The other is self-critical. The comparison of, I went to the cheap restaurant instead of the expensive restaurant is self-serving. The comparison that I went to the cheap restaurant instead of staying at home and eating rice and beans is self-critical. Now, if I want to be accurate then the answer is I'm not an angel or a demon. You know, I'm not the worst person in the world but or the best because, person in the world. I'm you, somewhere in the middle, and I want to know where I stand in the middle. And that's what contrastivist gives you is a way of describing where you stand It in the gives middle. you an easy way to make yourself seem like you're in the middle because you could easily come up with a whole host of things that make you look a lot worse. There are an infinite number of things that are better, and there are an infinite number of things that are worse. Hey, I, don't I don't know why know that isn't right. in the middle. I that know. is in the middle. Well, you could easily You're in the middle too. You could easily construe Taco Bell as in the middle. You could construe or you could construe a fairly nice non-chain restaurant. As Don't in the you think you're in the middle? <laughs> I think. Well, Don't you think you're not the best person in the world and you're, you're also asking. not the worst? Yeah, but it, then, it, but then you don't need contrastivism. Like, like what I want to know is whether contrastivism tells me I'm the best or the worst. But, uh, but no, also it doesn't know, tell you that. It tells you you're not the best, and it tells you you're not the worst. Well, but it also can help. It tells you relative to one contrast, you did the right thing. Relative to another right. contrast, you did the but wrong let's thing. Stick, let's let's not let's take out best and worst. Let's say where do I rank in percentile of people who are giving who are meeting the demands of consequentialism? So now I say. Compared to this person, I give a lot of my expendable income to charity. Compared to this person, I don't. But where you construct the scale, right? It's just these contrast effects are are pernicious in in social psychology, right? So you could say um, Joe stole $50. Bob murdered his mom. How bad was Joe's action? Well, not that bad because he stole $50. Joe stole $50. Bob donated $50 to charity. And all of a sudden you get these effects that like Joe seems really bad. So my concern is that you exactly. – that there is some work that needs to be done in determining what – where you're putting the scale because if I'm constructing the scale to evaluate myself, I might be very different than if I'm constructing a scale to evaluate Walter. There's nothing better than when your critic makes your argument for you. And so – what does a contrastivist say? They say both contrasts are relevant. The problem that's, that psychologists are studying is when you take one of those contrasts and base your moral judgment on one alone. You have to have both contrasts in mind before you reach a moral judgment. You want to think about killing versus stealing $50, and you want to think about whatever it was, right. helping your mother helping versus $50. You have to look at all those contrasts. You have so to look the contrastivist at the whole said, state. none of those contrasts is privileged. 
Damn so now there are a hundred actions, right? And mine slice somewhere between like the yeah. say negative one hundred to positive one hundred actions that that maximize. I think it's thirty-seven. <laughs> Critics have argued. <laughs> Experts have determined that somewhere between thirty-seven and thirty-nine. But what does it mean to stand at spot twenty-nine on the positive end of the spectrum versus spot thirty-seven? It means that you're better than those alternatives and worse than the others. I don't understand what the problem is. If somebody goes, is this person tall? You go, well, he's taller than these people and shorter than those people. People do that all the time. It's only philosophers and maybe psychologists <laughs> who who want to say, but is he really tall? Is he is it really tall? good? Is no, okay. he really free? But while and contrastivists so, want to give all that up. In every, in every case... If I'm deciding, say, how much do I give to charity? Well, if I give this much, then I'm not going to have enough for that vacation. So now I'm trying to decide which of those two things to do. Contrastivism can tell me, and I know this already, right? Oh, well, it would be better than, you know, giving a smaller amount but going on the vacation would be better than not giving any money at all and going on a more expensive vacation. But it would be worse than not going on the vacation and giving more money to the charity. But... It doesn't tell me what, the, what I'm supposed to do in that situation, well, if you, right? I mean, if you want a philosophical theory to tell you how much to spend on your vacation, I think that's kind of crazy. <laughs> no, a, ph- a philosophical theory to say how much I should spend, no. how much I, I, I should spend on other people, and how much I should spend on myself. Should, so I'm not po- trying to do that. That's what I said was the other view of philosophy, that it's prescriptive, <laughs> telling people how to live their lives. Mm-hmm. I want to do a philosophy that describes where people stand relative to other people where their acts stand relative to other alternatives. Remember Hume, he doesn't want to, you know, go out and tell people what to do. He wants to describe what's going on when they make their judgments. And I'm in that business, not the other business. I'm not going to try to tell you where you ought to go on your vacation. So we can get to the heart of this, Tamler. Your penis is bigger than a lot of people's. And there is no right answer to whether it is the right size. You know? It all depends on the options. We're going to transition from the topic of my penis. Finally. I thought that's all you wanted to talk about.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizard. Okay. So one of the things I want to talk about with Walter that ties does tie into uh, a mention, at least, of moral responsibility and what contrastivism might offer. Because Walter has been working in collaboration with a number of researchers on on a, a category of individuals that is really perplexing as to whether, whether or not they deserve blame and punishment. That's uh, psychopaths. And I just couldn't I couldn't have Walter here in live without talking uh, a bit about psychopaths because he's it's just because I remind you of psychopaths. Well, right? I think that you might have some internal knowledge, <laughs> some intrinsic knowledge, introspection, uh, my some, source some of introspective knowledge. No, um, so what? So tell us first of all, just what defines a psychopath? Well, you tell me. So, who's your favorite example of a psychopath? Who do you take to be an example of a psychopath? They did a survey in Washington State for the top three people, and there were three clear winners that, what do you think most people would have guessed? Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy is a great example. Ted Bundy is a clear example of a psychopath. He obviously did horrible things to many people, but in addition, he was versatile. He committed lots of different types of crimes. He escaped from prison at times. He killed people. And he charmed the pants off of jury members. He charmed people. Uh, and he was a pathological liar and so on and so on. So he had criminal right. versatility. He had pathological lying, narcissistic, uh, changed uh, jobs and locations on a regular basis, and totally insensitive to punishment. When he was sentenced to death, this reporters started taking pictures, and he turned to them and waved and smiled. Wow. Most people, when they're sentenced to death, put their head in their hands uh, in their laps and, and bow down and just start crying. But he d- didn't face him at all. And that's the problem is psychopaths are born with an inability to really understand punishment and to get shaped by it. So if you've got a kid like this, what are you going to do? You know, how are you so going to so teach wh- wh- Where does the incapacity lie? Is, is it something cognitive? Is it... Well, it's cognitive, it's neural, it's genetic, it's all of the above. It's not one or the other. There are genetic differences. Uh, S.E. Vitting uh, found that 70% heritability in males with psychopath scores, 50% in females. Uh, People have found structural as well as functional differences in the brain. Uh, You know, different people have different theories. James Blair at the NIH thinks it's the amygdala. Kent Keel in New Mexico. thinks it's more broadly the paralimbic system because that has a certain type of cell structure uh, that's distinctive of it. But they so all, different people have different theories. And, but. and they all do uh, generally agree that fear conditioning is lacking yes. here, right? They, so all, fear, they all agree that there's a lack in fear conditioning. Right. So you take a psychopath, you go, okay, when I say uh, zero, you're going to get an electric shock. Right. Five, four, three, two... One, zero. Normal people start sweating at four. Right. Psychopaths don't sweat. And when you look at people who have uh, bilateral amygdalectomies, they had their amygdala out on both sides for, you know, for for one reason or another, some kind of disease or epilepsy, uh, then they don't sweat either. And so... And so, yeah, they're not scared of, of those impending uh, harms. Right. So that means that punishment doesn't work as, as a way to, punishment to teach doesn't them. Work. And I, I, so, you know, we know of all this literature that the, the path of fear conditioning is very, very well understood. Um, 
because uh, of our rat models. So, so, you know, you give rats tone, shock, tone, shock, tone, shock. Pretty soon tone is enough to to cause the fear response, the panic response. So the rat freezes, it poops. Um, but if you lesion their amygdala, then they don't seem to do this. And that's really concerning about, about psychopaths because it means that one of the ways in which we acquire sort of uh, internalized moral knowledge seems to be that we learn because of the consequences, the punishment. that. that so that doesn't work. Now the question is, how do you teach your kids to behave morally? The reward, the reward function is preserved, though, right? Reward function is preserved. But let's look at others first. Right. You can't use punishment. Mm-mm. You can't use authority. I'm your father, therefore you ought to obey right. me. That doesn't work. Because they, they, they have a grandiose self-image. That's another one of the diagnostic items. They think they're cool as hell, and they're not going to listen to you. Uh, what about empathy? Do yeah. you hurt your little brother or your little sister? No, that doesn't work either because they don't have any empathy. They right. go, great, I hurt them. Who cares? Yeah. Can we pause on that for one sec? So my layman's conception of, an, of a psychopath, they can take another person's perspective. So they're not autistic um they're they have theory of mind but they if somebody else is feeling pain or sad that doesn't bother them like it bothers non non right so if you they show don't a, feel if you show a picture of like a dismembered limb to a psychopath like they don't have that same arousal like so right. because i mean they can do psych they can do uh read other people's minds in some ways. For example, they can manipulate people, so they must have some mind reading abilities. But on yeah. the other hand, they don't feel fear of punishment themselves, and so they can't appreciate what it's like for other people to feel fear of punishment. Yeah. Right? So here's a classic story. Um psychopath is in a group therapy session and they talk to each other for six months before they're released from prison. And then he's released from prison. And, you know, very so- shortly after being released, he's back in prison for committing a whole bunch of other crimes. And um, the therapist asks, well, what did you learn from the therapy session? Oh, I learned a lot. <laughs> well, what did you learn? Well, there's this one guy whose sister had cancer. And he was really upset about it. I didn't realize that people cared about their siblings. I don't understand why, but they seem to. And that gave me the idea that I can manipulate people by threatening their siblings. So notice so they're like scientists. They're yeah, like, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They call- they're like anthropologists on Mars right. to steal a right. phrase from another source. Right, right. But right. so now what does that mean? It means they're good at reading other people's minds in one sense. Because that he could tell that this person was upset about their sister having cancer. Right. But they're not good at reading other people's minds in another sense. They can't just kind of imagine what it would be like if they haven't heard the, in this therapy session. Right. It's like and the so insight. This, they this, have deficits, but they also have abilities. This is why you know the research, some at least some research shows, I don't know, Walter, you may know, uh, the the current set of research a bit better, but that that psychopaths therapy does nothing other than just train them in the ways of how human psychology works. So that depends on the therapy, yeah. talk therapy, group therapy, kind of cognitive behavioral group therapy uh, has in no study has shown any positive effect, and in three studies has shown uh, to be counterproductive to actually increase. The rate of crime by the psychopaths. Because <laughs> they, they have more data. Yeah. They got more data. They know how they yeah, thought, oh, right. I can manipulate by threatening siblings now. <laughs> so do they know, and Tamler, I'm sorry if I'm interrupting your questions, but I, there is one question that I did want to get out, which is, 
do they know that it's wrong? I mean, do uh, they really like when I say it's wrong to murder? I don't just mean it's against the law. Like I don't mean that it's like fifty-five miles per hour, right? I mean it's wrong to murder. It's wrong for everybody. It would be wrong for me to do it. If people do it, they deserve deep blame. Like it doesn't seem like they ever acquired this knowledge. That, it, but if you ask them, they say, "Yeah, of course, it's wrong to murder." But aren't they just? There's two possible. Well, there's more than two, but there's at least two possibilities. One is. They understand the the proscription against murder to uh, to mean the same thing as the fifty five mile per hour speed limit. I could get in trouble. The other one is that they're lying. They know what it means to be wrong in a moral sense, and they don't want to tell you that they don't think it's wrong. Right? Is there? Have we teased those two apart? Uh, no, I think we haven't. I think there's a lot we don't yet know about psychopaths because. Uh, there just hasn't been enough research. There hasn't been enough research because of lack of funding, because of problems of access to the prisons, uh, because of their tendency to lie and deceive, which makes research difficult and certainty almost impossible. Uh, so there's a lot we don't know. And I think that's one of the questions we have not teased apart. If you ask them questionnaires, is this wrong, is that wrong, is this wrong, is that wrong, in almost all the studies that have been done, they give either normal answers or better than normal answers. Right. So on Kohlberg's right. test, they're above normal in their level of moral development. Right. Uh, but then you ask, do they really believe it or are they just saying right. it? Now, how are you going to figure that out? Right. Well, wait, wait. I, I'm confused because I, I feel like we have all the evidence we need that they don't think it's wrong in the same way that Dave, you're saying you say it's wrong just by the anecdote you told before. If if they can't if if they have to learn that somebody having a sister that's dying of cancer that that can make them sad, then obviously they they have to just be anthropologists when they're saying, "Oh, okay, so here are the rules that these people follow, like rules of etiquette." You think that the 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 knowledge that it's wrong requires some emotional understanding of the pain that you're causing? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, in any interesting sense, uh, and I don't want to get in. You, I'm glad to bring you into this internalism, externalism. No, you but know, I, I, really I, I, I reject that I'm being brought into it. And in fact, like I, I can feel myself getting like sucked in. Right I, I know there. it's great, but like it seems like from what Walter said, we know what we need to know, and that further study of psychopaths isn't going to help. Well, they're not motivated to not do the wrong thing. Right. Even if they say it's wrong, they're not motivated to do the wrong thing. So, well, they have some motivation not to do the wrong thing because they're going to get in jail if they do. But I thought they had no fear of punishment. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have a fear of punishment, but they also know that if they're they in jail, that, they can't drive right. fast and take drugs. And, <clears throat> and by the way, they, it's not as if they don't have fear. Like if they're being threatened physically, they will respond in the appropriate way. No, they'll respond defensively, but, yeah. but that doesn't mean they have fear. Right. Well, but the deficit doesn't seem – oh, they get angry at least, right? They, they get angry. They get angry, yeah. So there's this myth that, that psychopaths don't make any moral judgments. They do make moral judgments. The, if like, you, cheat, you them, cheat them, they say, oh, my God, you cheated me. I'm so angry. As a matter of fact, in the, um, in, uh, in the ultimatum game, they reject – 
more unfair offers than normal people. Really? Right. That's, yeah. that's great. That's great. So they have a sense of unfairness to them. Right. But just but they also give more unfair offers. And so and Paul Bloom has the balls to argue that empathy doesn't matter. They also <laughs> seem to have uh, intact disgust with regard, some of them at least, have intact disgust with regard to some situations. So mm-hmm. who kills the pedophiles who come into prison? Sometimes it's the psychopaths first. Uh-huh. And they see that as very disgusting and wrong. So I've heard that. Why? Why do they care about that? If they can't, what's the explanation for why they go after pedophiles? I'm See, glad they do, but why? Notice that's a, a really um, difficult question if you're working at the level of philosophy or psychology, because you get to neuroscience and you go, oh, because the part of the brain that doesn't work in them is different from the part of the brain that is, uh, that is subserving the disgust towards pedophiles the insula is fine in them it's the amygdala that's broken and so if that's right i mean that's just a theory we don't know all of these things and i want to add all those qualifications but but if you want to understand why they have a negative reaction to pedophiles but do not have a negative reaction to raping killing and dismembering somebody it's because one part of their brain's broken and the other part of the brain works (laughs) that's interesting yeah. And that's where neuroscience can be helpful. You know, yeah. purely psychology, you can't figure that out. That's interesting. Do all psychopaths or do psychopaths have identifiable areas of their brain that there are clear <laughs> deficits? Yeah, there are deficits of various sorts. You know, one type is just purely physical size. So if you do a structural MRI, not functional, you're just looking at the size of the different parts, you can actually, according to an algorithm... The size compared to what? Compared to normals. <laughs> compared okay. to normals. All right. <laughs> you can predict off the size of different parts of the brain, most of the relevant voxels are in the paralimbic system, uh, you can predict the psychopathy score on the official checklist plus or minus two. So the scale goes from zero to 40, and if you're over 30, you're a psychopath... A trained clinician. Walter was a 29. So, yeah. <laughs> a, a trained clinician in an interview is plus or minus 1.5, and you can do just on a structural scan plus or minus 2, at least in the sample that what was tested. You always have to add qualifications because there isn't enough research. This sample was 50% Hispanics in New Mexico. Who knows what happens to the Which Swedes is, up in so Wisconsin? Ken Keels. Yeah. Yes, in Ken yeah. Keels. Uh, Mind Research Network lab in the uh, Western New Mexico Correctional Facility in right. New Mexico. So, Tamler, in the last five minutes, you want to just talk about like the responsibility? Like, yeah, I was yeah. Uh, just about to ask that. So, I know because you gave a talk at University of Houston about the moral responsibility of psychopaths. W- what are your thoughts about that? And I imagine this is something where that we can bring back contrastivism of handling this. And let me, let me ask it this way, you know, the way that I often ask my class, like a schizophrenic who hallucinates thinks, you know, the dog is talking to him and telling him to, to, to kill his neighbor. We reduce descriptions of blame and we just say, look, this guy belongs in mental hospital. (laughs) Although my dog tells me that all the time. I've never killed (laughs) You should, you have, you have constraint. Uh, the psychopath is broken in a different way. Psychopath can formulate intentions. It can plan. He can plan. Uh, he can 
you know, they have some deficits in future oriented, you know, oriented planning, but they certainly intend and carry out their plans and they kill somebody because they lack the emotional constraint. Is it, but, but nonetheless, it's heritable. It's clearly a mental illness. It's clear that they're broken in some very, very serious way. Where do they stand and how do we determine where they stand in terms of moral responsibility? Okay, so the first thing I, think I want to clarify is that Son of Sam, who mm-hmm. followed the orders of the dog, mm-hmm. acted intentionally. He planned out how he was going to kill those women in the car. Sam told him to do it, yeah. and he went out and, and loaded the gun, walked up to the car, pointed the gun in the window. All that was intentional. There was no lack of intention. He knew what he was doing, and it was intentional. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, there was an epistemic problem there. There was an epistemic problem. Namely, he thought he was obeying the orders of a dog. Right. Okay. okay? But we're going to let him off. Yeah. Okay? Now, what about the psychopath? Hey, why, why didn't he think the dog had any particular say about what he I know. <laughs> like, what's up with this dog? <laughs> and so he thought the dog it Sounds was... like this is the dog's fault. I know. Well, it is. <laughs> I say kill the dog. The dog should be flayed. <laughs> Uh, and so uh, psychopaths also have deficits. They know what they're doing. They do it intentionally. But there are other aspects of what they're doing that they don't know or don't understand. But their aggression is often instrumental, right? So the serial sure. killer is a, is a rare exception for a psychopath. It's usually like, well, I wanted to grab that beer, and this guy was saying I had to pay, and I didn't have any money, so I stabbed him. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But what they don't know is how wrong it is. Yeah. But right? I mean, so they the, know some aspects of the act, they don't know others. The intention doesn't matter if you don't know that if you think what you're doing is right, then the fact that it's intentional doesn't matter. That just means you're smart. It doesn't mean that uh and you're able right, to you need effectively both. You need It seems student. like for moral responsibility, the way you're describing it, if they have no way of knowing that the thing that they're doing is wrong, they shouldn't be morally responsible. That is a feature of the U.S. legal system, at least. Uh, that is a feature of the U.S. legal system. The U.S. legal right. system Men's is trying to find them just... legally responsible. Yeah. But now, are they morally responsible is a separate question. And, right. of course, that raises issues about whether the legal system should find them legally responsible if we hold that they're not morally responsible. But... The argument, as Tamler said, is that they're not morally responsible because they don't really understand or appreciate or know the moral wrongfulness of their action. And the answer is, well, they, you know, in some ways they know it and in some ways they don't. They certainly know that it's viewed by almost everybody in their society as wrong. Right. They've been told by their lawyers, because usually these people have been through the ringer in the legal system. Uh, they've been told by their lawyers that it's wrong. and and do, But they, do they really appreciate it? That's, well, not right. fully. Do they feel it? Yeah. Right. Do they I mean, feel it? I, well, they might actually feel some of it, you know, but but not, not as much as we do. And so this is another case. I mean, you said bring back contrastivism. Absolutely. Like, there's a degree of responsibility here. It's crazy to think we're going to turn to somebody as complex as a psychopath, which is much variation as there is among psychopaths, and go, are they responsible or not? Yes or no? Give me an answer, Tamler. Give me an answer, David. Yeah. No, you can't say yes or no. They are responsible to a certain degree. Now, what degree is that? My best analogy is 
uh, a five-year-old. How old's your daughter, Tamler? She's very cute, by the She's way. She's 10. Thank you. She's 10. Okay. I'm going to go for a five-year-old. And the five-year-old walks up to you. When she was five, did she ever do this? My, my kids, you know, you, you can't have a second dessert. Sorry. I hate you, daddy. <laughs> when they say that. No. No, she never said that. Well, other she never kids... said I hate I hate you. She would sometimes slam her door and say bad parents. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> it's the closest. But what was her intention when she said bad parents? She intentionally caused harm to you. She knew it was going to cause harm. She tried to cause harm. That's what she was hmm. trying to do. Why was she doing that to manipulate you to get what she wanted? But yeah. do we hold her responsible? Not at the age of five. Uh, you know, yeah. eh, spanking. <laughs> so, uh, Dave is a fan of tough love, right? tough love. With, his, with his daughter. Yeah. Tough love. So, so the point is we don't hold them fully responsible. Maybe we hold them partially responsible, but not in the way we would if they did the same thing when they were 15 or 20. Uh, and so I think psychopaths are kind of – that's the best analogy I can think of. But, These people are – not aware of morality any more than a five-year-old. But they're not developed in that social, moral way. And they don't really understand the way a five-year-old doesn't really understand. Well, and that's why they should not be held fully responsible. But the reason I brought up the intentionality, the clear intentionality of the psychopath is because they seem to have a goal structure. Like even if it's a short-term goal structure, right, that unlike the schizophrenic – um, is a goal structure that is reasonable. They say, you know, I want to get my beer. Um, I have the same goal structure. They're just willing to do things that I would not be willing to do, and they intend it and they plan it, and this seems to meet all of the criteria. They even know, as you say, they know at some level that it's wrong, that society deems it wrong. So what, <laughs> what the end result is is that not only do we not reduce our punishment or we don't put them in the class of mental illness, we are extra, extra punitive about them, right? These are the people who get the death sentence. These are not, there's no, at least the lay perspective is that these people are pure evil and that they deserve to be the, to get the book thrown at them. And so it's not just that we're fighting to get them from like some sort of pity to like the category of mental illness is that it's that they are seen as pure evil. And I don't know how you could get society to be convinced that these people ought to be, say, put in a hospital versus just killed. Well, how I could get society to say that is a different question. Right. From, but you believe that. I don't think a I mean, hospital, but I think that they should be put in a separate facility. They should right. not be put in to the normal prisons with normal prisoners. And there are a number of reasons for that. Number one, they don't deserve it because they're not responsible fully. Number two, they're going to infect the other prisoners and cause all kinds of problems in the prison. Number three, it's going to be dangerous for the guards because the guards don't know which of the prisoners are psychopaths and which are not, and so on and so on. But uh, in addition, they should not be put in a mental institution with schizophrenics. I mean, oh, my gosh. You know, you don't want your schizophrenic uh, yeah. child to be housed with a psychopath. So the a, solution is an island of psychopaths. The solution is a separate facility. <laughs> I don't know if it should be an island, but it's a separate facility where they're going to get treated as a special case. And then you do a reality show yeah. of that special facility. Right. Yeah. And that and pays for the facility. And that pays, that for, pays the for the facility where... <laughs> Yeah, like everyone's a winner. I'm glad. We but sh- also, there are ways to treat them 
on that facility. And you see... What are the ways of treating yeah. psychopaths? So we, we discussed this earlier. You know, you can't use punishment. You can't use empathy. You can't use authority. But as David said, you can use positive yeah. rewards. Because uh, that's a different part of the brain than negative? Yeah, yeah. so Michael Caldwell... Uh, at the Mendota Juvenile Correctional Facility in Mendota, Wisconsin, but just across the lake from Madison, Wisconsin, uh, runs this program, and he fe- he's the only one who's been able to figure out how to do it. They come to the prison, and he says, you know, what do you like to do? And they say, well, I like to play ping pong, or I like to watch TV, or I like to go for walks, or I like to lift weights. And, you know, you get to do that if you get a certain number of points. So you get a positive reward, something that's going to be meaningful to you, if you follow the rules. And the first six months, apparently, it doesn't do a lot of good. But the second six months, it kicks in. And they have a 50% reduction in violent crime, found out by following these kids over two years after release. And more importantly, the worst crimes are avoided. So the untreated group had 16 murders. The treated group had zero murders. Now, these are 12 to 16-year-old juveniles, adolescents, I guess. Uh, We don't know whether it works with adults. We don't know whether it works in other ethnic groups and so on. There's a lot more research to be done, but it's the most promising possibility we know right now. And, you know, I want to chime in that this kind of behavior, behavioral therapy is uh, is something that Alan Kazin at Yale has used very effectively in his child conduct clinic. So so we don't we don't label children as, as psychopaths um for various reasons, but we call them child conduct disorder. Um and conduct disorder with callous and unemotional callous traits. Callous and unemotional traits, right? Yeah. But these are ba- these are the ones that are baby baby psychopaths. And these are kids who are stabbing their siblings at but age the, five. The real problem is political. We know these this is less than one percent of the population that commits over thirty percent of the violent crime in our country, and we know what to do with them. Yeah. Why don't we do it? We don't do it because the legislators are going to have to say, "Well, we'd like some money uh, to, to reward give rewards to, to reward psychopaths," and that's so, not you know that's not going to fly politically. But economically, so, it saves a lot of yeah. money, and of course, it saves a lot of lives and a lot. And of And at this child conduct clinic, just to just to finish this up, Taylor, uh, the the success that Alan Kazan has with kids that would be institutionalized for the rest yeah. of their lives is amazing. I mean, and this is just. People, people, uh, you know, another barrier is they get offended because they're like, oh, this is rat and pigeon psychology. But no, you know what? The rewarding the appropriate behaviors just works. It just works in these kids. It, it just, just works it just because, works. you know, we're not only rats and pigeons, but among other but things, we are, we are rats and yeah, pigeons. We're mammals. Right? Yeah. So we're rats, not pigeons. Yeah, we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're mammals. That's right. I, I have two questions. One, I think I know the answer to. The other, I'm not sure. The first is. So the absence of punishment is not a reward. That's not enough of a reward. In right. other words, just saying we're not going to keep you from playing ping pong, um, it won't work. But saying we'll allow you to play ping pong will work. So like you have to frame it the right way and present it to right. them that way. If yeah. you say everybody gets to play ping pong, but if you misbehave, you don't. It's not going to work the same way yeah. as if you go, nobody gets to play ping pong unless you behave. Yeah. Right. And, and it's just a framing thing. Now, there are a lot of details. I'm just giving you this rough, very loose sure. kind of thing. You want to find more about Michael Caldwell's program. 
and yeah, he we'll post some links. I'll ask you to. I'll, we'll I'll send you some links yeah. and stuff. Yeah. You know, but the basic idea has. Yeah, I think you're right. It has to do with framing, but framing changes people's behavior. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. So that uh, the second one, which I don't know the answer is to what extent that's true of non psychopaths. It's it. You know what? It's a general human principle. I can I can answer right. that easily. It's a general human principle that rewards will always work. If you have children who throw temper tantrums, these behavioral principles are the most robust truths about how to modify behavior. It's just, there is this weird resistance because people, parents don't feel like, and I'll post links to, to this work by Alan Kasdan, because the same shit that works with psychopaths works with rats, works with kids, works with adults. Right. It's all just these, this a very robust in the mammalian brain, the reward system just works to modify behavior. Absolutely. I, yeah, the only difference is that with psychopaths, the other things don't work. The other things don't work. Right? They don't you work at all. You can't right. appeal to authority. You can't appeal to empathy. You can't appeal yeah. to punishment. With normal people, you have all four to appeal yeah. to. But yeah. rewards, rewards always work better. work better. Well, empathy also works very well. No, empathy works for yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. Anyway, on on that note, maybe uh, we we're out of time. <laughs> so stop spanking your kids, like Dave. S- start giving and them. Start. let them play ping pong. For the record, I don't spank my daughter. Um, uh, all right. Well, thank you, Walter. I have never spanked either of my kids, but it's, one time my mother spanked me. Well, well, and it was just she was so pitifully weak. I just laughed at her. <laughs> well, <laughs> I wish that you had not spanked me then, Walter. Oh. <laughs> This t- this whole podcast, Walter's been spanking. <laughs> only only been a little uncomfortable to watch, <laughs> but also kind of hot. So, yeah. All right, all right. Thanks, Walter. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming. Out. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Just a very bad wizard.